The scripture reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please pray with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you alone, O God, are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In 2008, greed was on full display with all its glittering attraction and devastating consequences. Some of the names have been indelibly burned into our permanent memories. Bear Stearns, AIG, Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac. One name you may not remember is that of Jemidai Damore. On the night of Thanksgiving 2008, Damore was working as a security guard at Walmart at the Green Acres Mall on Long Island. Overnight shoppers had gathered outside the doors for Black Friday sales on toys, DVDs, flat panel televisions, and other items priced to lure people in for the biggest shopping day of the year. Shortly before 5 a.m., the crowd began to press against the door, jostling to be first in line for the best deals. Damore stood just inside the sliding glass doors, trying to bring order and hold back the crush of shoppers. Suddenly, the doors shattered and Damore was thrown to the ground. Rather than stopping to help, the crowd continued unabated, rushing into the store and trampling him to death in the process. Friends, greed is rampant. From Wall Street to Main Street, among the privileged elite and the poverty-stricken poor and everyone in between. And its consequences can be catastrophic, both for the body and the soul. Today is the second installment in our sermon series for Lent, Virtues and Vices looking at the seven deadly sins. There's some space on the back of your worship bulletin. If you hear something you want to make note of to hold on to for later, I encourage you to do that. 
Of the seven deadly sins, gluttony, greed, sloth, lust, envy, pride, and wrath, greed may be the one we can all agree belongs on the list of the seven deadly sins. Scripture is unequivocal in its condemnation of greed. The Bible says more about money than it says about sex. One of the most oft-quoted and misquoted, frankly, passages in the Bible comes from 1 Timothy 6.10, a few verses before Dr. Johnson's reading this morning. It says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Note that it does not say that money is evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's that love of money bit that gets us into trouble. The Common English Bible graphically renders the consequences. Some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. Impaled themselves with pain because they made money their goal. I use the word greed for this vice, but in the classic list of the seven deadly sins, the word used is avarice. Avarice comes from the Latin root avere, which means to crave, to crave. Avarice is an unhealthy craving, a desire without limit. While we typically think of greed in relation to money, it can apply to any unhealthy craving. It is this limitless craving itself that is at the root of all kinds of evil, even leading to the other deadly sins. James Ogilvy writes, greed turns love into lust, leisure into sloth, hunger into gluttony, honor into pride, righteous indignation into wrath, and admiration into envy. If it weren't for greed, we would suffer fewer of the other vices. Greed is a major problem. And it touches all of us, no matter our station in life. In her book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca Conondike de Young writes, the greedy person's attachment to wealth can wear many faces, an overflowing shopping cart or a single purchase, a stock portfolio that is aggressive or conservative, a wallet full of credit cards or a safety deposit box with a few carefully guarded treasures, a garage full of expensive cars or a closet jammed full of great deals. Why is greed so powerful? And why is it so deadly? Its power lies in its deception. A deception that comes in two forms. First is the deception of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Acquiring more feels like gaining control. We, we believe somehow that if we, if we just have enough, we won't need or want anything else and we'll be in control of our lives. This quest for self-sufficiency is a lie. First of all, we will never have enough. When have you ever known anyone who had enough? We're always reaching, grasping for what is next, carefully guarding what we have lest anyone else try to take it away from us. And the notion of self-sufficiency is sinful for the very reason that it makes us believe we are responsible for our provision and happiness. Well, friends, that's a position that belongs to God alone. We have no power whatsoever to provide except by the grace of God. 
All our carefully conceived plans for self-sufficiency can be wiped out in a heartbeat through disaster, disease, market fluctuations, and any number of other circumstances completely beyond our control. Jesus told the story of a man who believed he was self-sufficient. He'd been very successful. He had, in fact, so much gathered, so, so he'd been so prosperous that he didn't have room for everything. So he decided he would tear down his barns and build new ones, bigger ones, large enough to hold everything. And then he thought he would just live in ease and plenty for the rest of his life. But he was a fool. He could number his possessions, but he could not number his days. That very night he died, and God asked him, now who will get the things you have stored up for yourself? Jesus said, it will be the same for all who hoard earthly possessions for themselves and are not generous toward God. The second deception is that acquiring more will bring us joy. Acquiring something more will bring us joy. Does it really work? Get a new car and you'll suddenly notice all the other new cars around you and, and you'll be trying to decide how is yours as good as theirs or maybe I should have gotten a red one or maybe I should have gotten a black one. Those look pretty nice. Move into a new neighborhood and before long you'll be scrutinizing whether your house is as nice as your neighbors stacking up against each other. The same applies to job, clothes, food, you name it. What we failed to realize is that while we have been busy acquiring more possessions, our possessions have been acquiring us. Our best defense against the effect of vices is to cultivate their corresponding virtues. In the case of greed, the virtue we need to cultivate is generosity. Now the ancients called it liberality. But the word liberal has become problematic for us. It's sort of used as a derogatory term. Uh, it's been appropriated and politicized, so, so we generally say generosity instead. But in many ways, liberality is the better word. It comes from the Latin root liber, which means free. It's the same root from which we get the word liberty. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Why would a word that's synonymous with generosity be related to freedom? Well, as a virtue, liberality or generosity is a balance point between two extremes. On one extreme is greed or avarice, the desire to hoard wealth for oneself. Think of Ebenezer Scrooge, tight with his money and miserable to be around. On the other extreme is prodigality, wastefulness or, or, or treating things of value as though they are meaningless. And the prime example we have comes from the 15th chapter of Luke, the prodigal son who, who wasted his inheritance on cheap thrills and, and loose living. The virtue of liberality is the golden mean somewhere between grasping too firmly and holding too loosely. A generous person is characterized by a healthy detachment to things. A person who knows the value of money and possessions but puts them to good use toward things that really matter. Incidentally, it's possible, likely even, for a person to be drawn to both avarice and prodigality. 
The desire to acquire more possessions means we spend more than we should. Then we obsess about earning more money for ourselves, which enables us to spend more, which requires us to earn more, and so on and so on. And the cycle, that vicious cycle, repeats over and over again. Our over-acquisition also leads to over-disposing as we dump our old stuff into landfills to make room for the new stuff. Prodigality is merely another form of greed, unchecked and unhealthy desire for the wrong things. But generosity, generosity frees us from insatiable consumption and misplaced desire. Now, like most parents, Jen and I have worked to help our kids understand the difference between needs and wants. Parents in the room, you had this conversation with your kids. To say I need a new pair of shoes that fit my feet is not the same as I need $20 to go to see a movie with my friends. But here's the thing. Adults can be just as fickle when it comes to distinguishing between needs and wants. Can we not? When we focus too much on the things that we want, we stop noticing how much we have. Over time, we eventually convince ourselves that the things we want are necessary. I confessed three times last week. I'm only going to confess once today. I have a bit of an obsessive personality. When I get a new interest, I kind of dive completely in. I want to, I want to just immerse myself in it, and I want to collect things, in particular around collections. I want to have everything like as quickly as possible. Friends, that's greed. The longer greed goes unchecked, the more it makes its mark on our hearts. Greed is about distorted values, displaced goals, disordered desire. Oscar Wilde once described a person who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. That sounds like us, doesn't it? In the Hebrew Bible, we find... In the book of 1 Kings, the story of King Ahab. Now, 1 Kings goes through a whole list of kings, and each one of them, it says, seems to be worse than the one who went before him. And King Ahab was just about as bad as they come. Now, Ahab had everything he could ever need. The, the wealth of Israel was at his fingertips. But just outside the palace, there was a vineyard. And Ahab wanted that vineyard. Oh, it looked like great land. He could look at right out the window and see it. The problem was it wasn't his. It belonged to a man named Naboth. So Ahab tried to get the field from Naboth. First, he asked him to give it to him as a gift. Yeah, right. Then he offered to pay him for it. Naboth said, no, it's not for sale. And then he said, I'll give you more vineyards somewhere out in the countryside. I have, I have all these vineyards. I'll give, I'll give you more. Naboth said, this land was in my family for generation after generation. It's, it's our ancestral land. How could I give it up? Well, Ahab didn't like that very much. So he got together with his wife, Jezebel. You've heard of Jezebel? And they conspired against Naboth to bring false witness that led to his execution. No sooner had Naboth died than Ahab took possession of that vineyard for himself. There he made a field, a garden that he wanted for produce he did not need. The scripture's assessment of him is brutal. Indeed, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Throughout this year at Church of the Savior, we're focusing on justice and mercy using Micah 6.8 as our theme verse. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. At its heart, greed is an issue of justice. Whether through hoarding or wastefulness, greed leads to inequitable, unjust, and unsustainable distribution in a world of plenty, denying the basic necessities of life to some while overindulging others. Basil of Caesarea said, It is the hungry one's bread that you hoard, the naked one's cloak that you retain, the needy one's money that you withhold. Wherefore, as many as you have wronged, you might have aided. Jesus famously said that it was easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I like the way Frederick Beekner put it. He said, for a rich man to get to heaven is about as easy as for a Cadillac to get through a revolving door. When Jesus said those words, it, it prompted the disciples to ask, well, then who can be saved? Jesus said, for humans, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Is it possible for us to be free from greed? Can we cultivate virtue so that the vices have no grip on our lives? Well, let me just say, if I didn't believe it was possible, I wouldn't bother with the sermon series. This is not just an academic lecture that I impart some information that you might find interesting to reflect on later and impress your friends or win at Jeopardy. This is a spiritual exercise based on scripture that is intended to lead to lives that are transformed. Transforming lives. No sermon series, no matter how brilliant it may be, cannot do this for us. No amount of self-help or hard work will get us there. For us, it is impossible to be freed from the power of sin. But with God, all things are possible. So how do we cultivate the value, the virtue of generosity? How do we learn to let go and put our trust in God's provision to find the sweet spot between hoarding and carelessness? Well, it begins with awareness of mindfulness of our need for grace and healing. It's helped by prayer, the, the prayer that we offer to God to ask for God's help, and it's shaped by our spiritual disciplines. But one reminder of virtue can be found in a surprising source. Now, if you have any money with you today, I want to encourage you to take some out. And I really mean that. I don't often carry cash, but I happen to have some on me today. So, no, really, get some money out. This is not a ploy to just get you to put this in the offering plate, by the way. And I want you to look. It can be currency or coin. Uh, I want you to look. If you have currency, look on the back. If you have a coin, look on the heads side. That's where it's most likely found. Four words were added to U.S. currency and coin in 1957. You'll see those words printed on the back. What are those four words? In God we trust. 
Now those words, that motto was added to U.S. currency in 1957 by an act of Congress signed into law by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. They have been there ever since, despite considerable pushback on the Establishment Clause. But I, no, I don't know what Ike's intent was, I don't, not, not judging that, but I find it intriguing that that phrase is printed on our money, the very place we need that reminder the most. And I just wonder, what would happen if we thought of that phrase every time we use money? What would happen if we, if we reminded ourselves, in God we trust, every time we, we make a purchase or a transaction or a loan or a payment? Isn't it interesting that our money makes a claim of itself that we so often fail to make of it? That our trust is not in our wealth, but in God. This, friends, is perhaps the most important rationale for tithing. Yes, the church budget depends on our contributions. Yes, give is one of the five key practices of faithful discipleship, along with worship, grow, serve, and invite. But it is an act of discipleship precisely because it reminds us that our provision comes from God, not from our wealth. When we commit to regular, faithful, sacrificial giving, we are practicing healthy detachment from worldly wealth in a culture that expects deep attachment to our money and our stuff. Bishop William Willimon says that the weekly offering may be one of the most radical, countercultural, defiant acts the church demands of us. We encourage the standard of a tithe. That's 10% of your household income. 10%, that's a lot, right? Now, why do we do this? It's not because we're desperate or because we're greedy, but because we find that teaching in Scripture, and we take Scripture very seriously. And when that gift is not the last expenditure we make each month after we've taken care of everything else for ourselves, but the first commitment we make, we are putting our money where our mouth is, that our trust is in God, not in our money. The practice of generosity helps us to let go and to put our trust where it belongs. Money can do many things when it's used appropriately. Money makes no promises nor demands of us. We do that to ourselves. Greed is the problem. It's nothing more than a deception that our money or our possessions can make us happy or secure. As followers of Christ, we should be neither stingy nor profligate in our use of resources. Instead, our trust is in God, who alone can promise and deliver all that we need. Then we can truly take hold of life that really is life. The writer of Hebrews urges us, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For Christ has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. May it be so. Amen.